I'm Jonathan Goldstein, and you're listening to Wiretap on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius XM. Today's episode, Tough Guys. My name is David Collier, and when I was 42, I went back through basic training again. David Collier is one of the most respected cartoonists in Canada, who when he was young, in his 20s, he'd been a soldier in the military. Two decades later, at the age of 42, he decided to re-enlist. A part of his motivation was that he'd been accepted into the Canadian Forces Artists Program, which commissions artists to capture military life. And David wanted to participate in uniform as a soldier, just like the Canadian war artists he respected so much. Going through basic training in your prime is tough enough, but as a middle-aged man, that takes real moxie, or spunk, or grit, or any one of those kinds of words that John Wayne would speak right before spitting his toothpick in someone's face. What David didn't anticipate was just how challenging things would be the second time around. I think it was the second or third day of basic training. We woke up at five in the morning, and after just going to sleep a few hours earlier, and we went out to the obstacle course, and it's dark, and we went through these different obstacles, and one of them was going through this tunnel, like crawling through that. And then there was an obstacle called the Irish Table, which was just a platform on a couple of poles that you had to leap up to and pull yourself up and over. And people had the option of getting boosts to go over. Like, you could get, there are other people who say, okay, I'll give you a hand up. And I was like, no, no. I I used to be the high jump champion of my grade six school. I can jump higher. So I made, ready to make a big, big jump. You know, I had my combat boots on, my helmet, extra weight to be sure, but I jump and then, pow! This huge boom, like I heard the shot. It's like the loud noise when a tendon snaps and my knee, the, the big muscle in my knee that your kneecap sits on top of snapped. And I wasn't able to walk for, you know, seven weeks at all. You know, it was just so embarrassing. You know, it's just so embarrassed that my body let me down. You know, it's very hard to be an old person and to be a soldier, but on the other hand, the institution suffers from the lack of older people. You know? See, a lot of people say, you know, military intelligence is an oxymoron, you know, and it's true in a way that there is little emotional in- intelligence in the military. And emotional intelligence is something that you get when you get older. I was I was reading that to have a mission to Mars, like a like a four year flight. The best crew for that would be not like Top Guns, Aviator, Aces, young guys, but middle-aged women, you know, like the emotional intelligence that you need to to work together as a team and and to be cooperative uh, is something that you get when you get older, right? A year after his injury, David's knee healed enough for him to attempt basic training again. And this time, he made it through. He became known as the mother figure of his squad, always carrying around Band-Aids in case one of the younger soldiers should get hurt. 
perhaps the essence of toughness isn't necessarily puffy-chested macho stuff. Maybe it's giving a damn about the people around you and sticking with an idea. Even if the world is telling you you're too old, too weak, too crazy. Toughness is knowing that no one can count you out if you don't count yourself out. I always feel at my toughest when I chop an onion without crying. I always feel at my toughest when I'm drinking beer out of a can. I always feel at my toughest when I stare down a squirrel in my flower bed. I always feel at my toughest when people are scared of my pit bull. When I'm using power tools. When I wear my Doc Martens. I always feel at my toughest when a woman needs me to open a jar for her. I always feel at my toughest when I give birth. I always feel at my toughest when I'm wearing sunglasses inside. I always feel at my toughest when I'm riding my bike through traffic. I always feel at my toughest when I jaywalk. I always feel at my toughest when my daughter tells me how strong I am. I always feel at my toughest when I'm protecting somebody I love. I always feel at my toughest. Always. My name is Laura Kraft, and I always feel at my toughest right before I get on stage to perform. A few years ago, I did stand up at Sing Sing Prison. If you're not familiar with that prison, it's like a high security, maximum security prison in upstate New York. It's famous. It used to have like a lot of executions before the death penalty went out. It had become like a punchline in American lexicon, like, ah, you're going upriver to Sing Sing. And so when my friend of mine had the opportunity for us to do a show there, I immediately jumped on it. I was so excited. Like, there's kind of nothing more badass than doing stand-up at Sing Sing Prison. When we were driving up there, I just remember thinking, like, how sad it was that prisons existed because, you know, everyone who was in there, they were all like a victim. They had an improper defense lawyer. Uh, our society is racist. Uh, there's the Rockefeller drug laws. There's the three-strike rules. So we get to the prison, and it looks like a real prison, like in a movie. You know when something looks so much like it's supposed to look that it doesn't seem real? Like there was a big gate that we walked through that clanked behind us. We went through these elaborate, like, metal detectors. They did these, gave us these crazy hand stamps that were fluorescent. You couldn't see it unless you put your hand under fluorescent light, you know, so no inmates could imitate the stamp and sneak out. So we go through security and walked through the entire prison to this auditorium. It kind of looks like a nice school auditorium. And I remember we, we got there on the early side, and there was an inmate band that was opening for us. That was a group of inmates who'd formed a band and could not have been a sweeter group of guys. They had saved and gotten us donuts, which I love, and um, we hung out with them, and I remember it was a beautiful day, and they had all the windows open, and it was like you could smell the flowers, and it was great. It was like a lovely way to spend the afternoon. And, uh, and every once in a while, you would sort of check yourself because somebody would make a mention about when they're going to be released. You know, I remember one guy said he wanted to work at a guitar store, and I said, oh, well, you should work at Guitar Center. And he said, yeah, if they're still around in 2036 when I get out. And I remember thinking, like, oh, yeah, you're an inmate who can't leave here. How interesting this all is. So I was kind of having a, a nice time, and uh, I remember I put on makeup, and I had a pretty red dress, 
and they had assigned a guard to watch me. And I remember thinking, like, this is a little bit extreme, isn't it? You know, I don't think I really need a guard. And I remember saying to him, oh, you know what, um, I have to use the restroom. And he'd be like, I have to come with you. And I was like, really? And then another time, I went to talk to the tech guy. There was an inmate who was running tech for us, and the guard yelled at me. He said, why, you went back there without telling me? I told you to tell me wherever you go. And I said, it's just the guy doing tech. It's fine. Don't worry about it. And I kind of thought the whole thing was ridiculous in a way. Anyway, so the show starts, and the inmates start filing in. And the inmate band plays, and they're really great and um, really charming. And then my friend Dave, who I was up there with, he goes on stage, and he's a big hit. And then it was time for me to perform, and I went up on stage, and I have a guitar, and I thought, I'll just sing this little song. And it's this really funny song that was a big hit when I did it around New York in the stand-up clubs. And I strum one chord, and I realized that my song is about the Internet and cable, two things that the inmates do not have. And I realized, oh, my gosh, they're not going to know what I'm singing about. So I look in the audience, and all of a sudden, all of the men, these big, muscly guys, do this thing that I now realize is like an alpha male thing to do, but it had never occurred to me before, which is they all lean back, they all put their arms like on the back of their chairs, and they all spread their legs. And uh, when we had looked up different things about Sing Sing, one of the things that somebody had told us is that, oh, if they don't like your performance, they make this clicking sound. Like, uh... So as I'm on stage, they all start making this clicking sound as they're displeased with my performance. And it really hits me that, oh my gosh, there's no protection between me and this auditorium of like, 350 guys. I thought maybe there'd be some kind of a barrier. There was no barrier. It was just an auditorium. And all of a sudden, my brain just goes blank, and I just become terrified because I just start thinking, like, what is to stop somebody from jumping up on stage and plucking off my head and throwing my head into the audience like a beach ball? I don't know why that image was in my head, but I just started thinking, like, oh, my God, that could really happen. And then somebody shouts out, do the Beyonce dance. And then everyone starts chanting, do the Beyonce dance. Do the Beyonce dance, which is like the sexy dance Beyonce does, um, which I cannot do. And um, I, I started shaking, like like I've never sh- like I was scared like in the marrow of my bones, just as though I'm in the middle of a huge earthquake, like shaking. And then I just got off stage as fast as I could. And I got off stage and I was standing next to the man, who, my guard, and he says, um, "You scared out there?" And I said, "Yeah, I was." He said, "You want to know why you're scared out there?" And I said, "Why?" And he said, "Because." Everyone out there, if they're not a rapist or a murderer, they're a rapist and a murderer. And then the show finally ends, and the, and the inmates were going back to their cells for lockdown. And I just want to get the hell out of Sing Sing. And it seemed like it took forever to leave the prison. We had to walk down hallway after hallway. And you can see, like, these silhouettes of people who had pulled themselves up to the window in their cells. And as we would walk by, all the inmates were chanting, Laura Kraft. Laura Kraft, like as though the terror of performing in front of them wasn't enough, they now knew my full name. And as soon as we finally left the prison and then clang the gates shut behind us, and I just start, immediately start bawling. And I remember we stopped in town at a bar, and I just ordered like a ton of scotches, because prior to this, I really did think I was pretty tough. Like, oh, I can do anything. I can go on any stage, it'll be fine. And I... It turns out, except for if you put me in a high-security prison with no barrier between me and 300 big, muscly guys who are rapists and murderers. 
always feel at my toughest when I'm wearing high heels and have a shot of whiskey in me. I always feel at my toughest when my beard is in full swing. When I'm changing my baby's diaper. When I expose my tattoos. When I accomplish something thought of as men's work. When I sharpen my own knives. When I'm wrestling with my 30-pound cockapoo. When listening to the Beastie Boys. I always feel at my toughest when I trip on the sidewalk and just keep walking, as though nothing happened. I always feel at my toughest when I pick up my three-year-old daughter and she wraps her little arms around my neck. I always feel at my toughest when I do something the hard way. I always feel at my toughest when I'm laying down the law. The Bus Driver Who Wanted to Be God by Edgar Carrot. This is the story about a bus driver who would never open the door of the bus for people who were late. Not for anyone. Not for repressed high school kids who'd run alongside the bus and stare at it longingly. And certainly not for high-strung people in windbreakers who'd bang on the door as if they were actually on time and it was the bus driver who was out of line. And not even for little old ladies with brown paper bags full of groceries who struggled to flag him down with trembling hands. And it wasn't because he was mean that he didn't open the door. Because this driver didn't have a mean bone in his body. It was a matter of ideology. The driver's ideology said that if, say, the delay that was caused by opening the door for someone who came late was just under 30 seconds, and if not opening the door meant that this person would wind up losing 15 minutes of his life, it would still be more fair to society to not let him in, because those 30 seconds would be lost by every single passenger on the bus. And if there were, say, 60 people on the bus who hadn't done anything wrong and had all arrived at the bus stop on time, then together they'd be losing half an hour, which is double 15 minutes. This was the only reason why he'd never opened the door. He knew that the passengers hadn't the slightest idea what his reason was, and that the people running after the bus and signaling him to stop had no idea either. He also knew that most of them thought he was just an SOB, and that personally, it would have been much easier for him to let them on and receive their smiles and thanks. Except that when it came to choosing smiles and thanks on the one hand, and the good of society on the other, this driver knew what it had to be. The person who should have suffered the most from the driver's ideology was named Eddie. But unlike the other people in this story, he wouldn't even try to run for the bus. That's how lazy and wasted he was. Now, Eddie was assistant cook at a restaurant called The Steakaway, which was the best pun that the stupid owner of the place could come up with. The food there was nothing to write home about, but Eddie himself was a really nice guy. So nice that sometimes, when something he made didn't come out too great, he'd serve it to the table himself and apologize. It was during one of these apologies that he met happiness, or at least a shot at happiness, in the form of a girl who was so sweet that she tried to finish the entire portion of mediocre roast beef that he brought her just so he wouldn't feel bad. And this girl didn't want to tell him her name or give him her phone number, but she was sweet enough to agree to meet him the next day, at five, 
at a spot they decided on together, at the Dolphinarium, to be exact. Now, Eddie had this condition, one that had already caused him to miss out on all sorts of things in life. It wasn't one of those conditions where your adenoids get all swollen or anything like that. But still, it had already caused him a lot of damage. This sickness always made him oversleep by 10 minutes, and no alarm clock did any good. That was why he was invariably late for work at the stakeaway. That and our bus driver, the one who always chose the good of society over positive reinforcements on the individual level. Except that this time, since happiness was at stake, Eddie decided to beat the condition. And instead of taking his daily afternoon nap, he stayed awake and watched television. But just to be on the safe side, in case he was to drift off, he lined up not one, but three alarm clocks and ordered a wake-up call to boot. But this sickness was incurable, and Eddie fell asleep like a baby watching the kitty channel. He woke up in a sweat to the screeching of a trillion million alarm clocks, 10 minutes too late, rushed out of the house without stopping to change, and ran towards the bus stop. He barely remembered how to run anymore, and his feet fumbled a bit every time they left the sidewalk. The last time he ran was before he discovered that he could cut gym class, which was about in the sixth grade. Except that unlike in those lazy gym classes, this time he ran like crazy, because now he had something to lose, and all the pains in his chest and his lucky strike wheezing weren't going to get in the way of his pursuit of happiness. Nothing was going to get in his way, except our bus driver, who had just closed the door and was beginning to pull away. The driver saw Eddie in the rearview mirror, but as we've already explained, he had an ideology, which, more than anything, relied on a love of justice and on simple arithmetic, except that Eddie didn't care about the driver's arithmetic. For the first time in his life, he really wanted to get somewhere on time. And that's why he went right on chasing the bus, even though he didn't have a chance. Suddenly, Eddie's luck turned, but only halfway. 100 yards past the bus stop, there was a traffic light. And just a second before the bus reached it, the traffic light turned red. Eddie managed to catch up with the bus and to drag himself all the way to the driver's door. He didn't even bang on the glass, he was so weak. He just looked at the driver with moist eyes and fell to his knees, panting and wheezing. And this reminded the driver of something, something from out of the past, from a time even before he wanted to become a bus driver, when he still wanted to become God. It was kind of a sad memory, because the driver didn't become God in the end. But it was a happy one, too, because he became a bus driver, which was his second choice. And suddenly the driver remembered how he'd once promised himself that if he became God in the end, he'd be merciful and kind and would listen to all his creatures. So when he saw Eddie from way up in his driver's seat, kneeling on the asphalt, he simply couldn't go through with it. And in spite of all his ideology and his simple arithmetic, he opened the door, and Eddie got on, and didn't even say thank you, he was so out of breath. 
The best thing would be to stop listening here, because even though Eddie did get to the Dolphinarium on time, happiness couldn't come, because happiness already had a boyfriend. It's just that she was so sweet that she couldn't bring herself to tell Eddie, so she preferred to stand him up. Eddie waited for her on the bench they'd agreed on for almost two hours. While he sat there, he kept thinking all sorts of depressing thoughts about life, and while he was at it, he watched the sunset, which was a pretty good one, and thought about how Charlie Horst he was going to be later on. On his way back, when he was really desperate to get home, he saw his bus in the distance, pulling in at the bus stop and letting off passengers, and he knew that even if he'd had the strength to run, he'd never catch up with it anyway. So he just kept on walking slowly, feeling about a million tired muscles with every step. And when he finally reached the bus stop, he saw that the bus was still there, waiting for him. And even though the passengers were shouting and grumbling to get a move on, the driver waited for Eddie and didn't touch the accelerator till Eddie was seated. And when they started moving, he looked in the rearview mirror and gave Eddie a sad wink, which somehow made the whole thing almost bearable. Sometimes toughness means knowing when to yield, knowing when to show mercy. And other times, it simply means not being afraid to pick up the phone, even though you know it would be easier not to. Are you busy tonight? Well, I mean, I was intending on maybe taking a bath. May I purchase the beverage at my local watering hole? What is the catch? There is no catch. You're the catch. It sounds suspicious. What's, you you never, see, this is you why you never, have no friends and no love in your life. You've never called me up expressly to, to offer me a freebie of anything. Well, I've never needed anything from you before. I see. Okay, so what is it that you need from me? Look, I have been walking into the same bar every night for 15 years now, and nobody knows who I am. They literally don't even know my name. It's like the reverse cheers. How can that be? That's impossible. I go in there, and you know what they yell? What? Nothing. It's dead silence. Well, is it like one of these kind of like large impersonal strip mall bars or something? where No. There's a... There are regulars at this bar, okay? they Just like me, they go right. every night. They walk in. Their favorite drink is slid to them on a little cocktail napkin. They don't have to ask. Except for me. I go in there every night, too. The guy never remembers me. I yeah. tell him, the same drink I have every night, pink squirrel looks at me blankly. Well, yeah, I would too. What is a pink squirrel? You know, creme de noyau, creme de cacao, heavy cream. Any bar can make that. I thought you were lactose intolerant. They have a bathroom. I have to repeat the order each time I get one. I say it six times a night, and I have to tell them what the ingredients are. It boggles the mind. It's not like I've gone in there and I always sit at the most remote table in the corner and I never talk to anyone. I mean, I try to make myself noticed, you know? I'm, I'm often shouting or crying or shouting and crying. Mm-hmm. In recent months, John, I decided to step up my game. You know, mm-hmm. I thought it was ridiculous that they don't know who I was. I, I just no. thought, obviously, I just, I just have to try a little harder. Right. You know, I brought in one of those portable burners. You know, I set up a fondue pot on one of the tables. I made fondue for everyone. That's nice. I leave huge tips. One time I went in a cowboy outfit. Uh-huh. I had just been sprayed by a skunk. Didn't notice me. Didn't notice you. I had a heart attack in the bar one time. No, you didn't. They had to use the paddles on me. In the bar? On the 
bar. They had three women dancing on the bar doing shots around me. Wait, I didn't even know that you had a heart attack. It turned out to be gas. Anyway. Can I ask you a question? Why wouldn't you consider at this point maybe just changing bars? Never. Why? Because I'm not going to let them win. Okay, so and, and what do you need me for? Here's my plan. Mm-hmm. I've scripted it out for us, okay? Okay. We walk into the bar together. I'm going to say I'd like a pink squirrel, please. And he's going to say I don't know how to make a pink squirrel. And then I'm going to tell him how, as I've done approximately ten to 20,000 times in my life. Mm-hmm. Then he's going to turn to you and ask you what you want. Mm-hmm. And you know what you're going to say? What? Well, at this other bar I frequent, they have a drink named after me. And then he's going to go, oh, really? Why would they have that? And you're going to say, well, I don't know if you ever listened to the radio, but my name is Jonathan Goldstein. Uh-huh. And that's going to be my cue to punch you right in the face. Hard. Who forgets that? There will be blood everywhere. Why would I agree to this? Because you value our friendship. Uh-huh. And, 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 and after I do that, that's the point at which I ring the bell in the bar and buy everyone in the bar drinks and become a hero to all. There is no way that I would ever agree to doing that. John, friendship involves pain, involves suffering. No, no, I'm... You do something out of the kindness of your own heart. You want to punch me in the face. Look, after I ring the bell, you'll get a free drink too, okay? Where's this bell? I'm bringing the bell. Why? This is the way I've always imagined it, okay? You've imagined punching me in the face before. No, it's usually one of those roundhouse kicks like John goes down there. On Wiretap today, you heard Laura Kraft, Joshua Carpatti, and David Collier. You can read all about David's re-enlistment in the Army in his wonderful graphic novel, Chimo. You also heard The Bus Driver Who Wanted to Be God, written by Edgar Carrot. Edgar is the author most recently of the excellent short story collection, Suddenly a Knock at the Door. Special thanks to our Facebook friends who shared with us their thoughts on toughness and to the men and women of CBC Montreal for reading them. Wiretap is produced by Mira Bertwintonic, Crystal Duhame, and me, Jonathan Goldstein. Subscribe to the podcast at cbc.ca slash wiretap, where you can also download the latest wiretap ringtone. May I purchase the beverage? Reach out to a stranger with every ring of your phone.